Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Hello there, and you are very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times, our special Christmas edition. I'm Hugh Linehan. I'm joined for this special by our full political team, Pat Leahy. Hello, Hugh. Harry McGee. Hi, Hugh. Thea Kelly. Hello, Hugh. And Jennifer Bray. Hello. This is our Ask Me Anything special. We got all kinds of interesting questions in. I was very disappointed, really, that I didn't get personal questions, you know, for each of you, you know, that might dig a little bit, a little bit under, under, under the surface. But really, we didn't get that. We actually just got questions about politics, but uh, some very good ones along the way. And from all over the world, uh, the very first one is from the other side of the world. Hi, my name is Timothy. I'm from Melbourne, Australia, and I love the podcast. It's my favourite way to learn about Irish politics and Brexit. Merry Christmas to you all. I have two questions. Who do you think will be the Taoiseach after the next election and why? Secondly, Irish politics has changed a lot over the past decade. There's been important referendums and elections that have changed what kind of country Ireland is. How do you think Ireland will change politically over the next decade and why? Thank you very much and have a happy new year. An easy one to start, Jennifer. Uh, oh, yeah. who's, who's the next Taoiseach? Um, honestly, I think probably the next Taoiseach will be Michal Martin. Um, I think that Fianna Fáil have shown that they have the edge this year so far. Now, anything can happen in uh, election campaign there are dynamic events um, uh, and I think it'll be around the corner but for the time being uh, now the opinion polls they're all kind of uniform showing that the the two parties aren't that far apart but it, really it's the government on the defence and they're on the back foot and if you look at the results of the local elections you look at the result of the European elections you look at the results of the by-elections it was Fianna Fáil that came out uh, doing pretty well especially in the by-elections when they added two TDs uh, to their to their dole Collection. So uh, I, I do think he has the edge and, and I think I think he knows it, to be honest. But um, anything could happen, but that's, that's my take. Vic, I'm going to immediately cop out and say it's too close to call um, because I think it's not just the performance in the election, it's what comes after. And, you know, they are so very evenly matched in terms of their first preference support, as we saw in the local elections, which are probably the more accurate barometer of where we are rather than the by-elections, but it's a very poor turnout. Um, so there'll probably be only only be a couple of seats between them. I'd say they'll be fighting to get whoever gets higher in the 50s in terms of seat count. And then, as we've seen, the jostling starts for the post-election negotiation. So we've seen the teacher repeatedly say now that he will not prop up a Fianna Fáil-led minority government if Fianna Gael have no seats. So I, I think there's a, a dynamic that has to play out after the election. And like, could you see, for example, where... Fianna Gael has two more seats or one more seat than Fianna Fáil and he just point blank refuses to do anything that would be lead to a Fianna Fáil minority government in effect bullying the smaller parties to come to his side because they won't want to face a second election. So I think the process might be a bit more, it might be a quicker process than last time in terms of government formation but it might be a bit more fraught. Harry? Um, I, I actually don't think it's going to be that close um, and I think Fianna Fáil will be the next primary uh, party in government, I think Michael Martin will be the Taoiseach. And I base my thinking uh, on this, even though they are close in the national opinion polls, just the way that our electoral system um, uh, works its way out uh, will favour 
uh, a party that has most to gain at, at the margins in terms of winning the last seat. And Fianna Fáil has much more potential in terms of the next election. Of course, circumstances can change and Fianna Fáil can shoot themselves in the foot. But at one stage, maybe about a year ago, Fianna Fáil looked like they could make a potential 12 gains or more. I think it's probably somewhat less now, but their potential for making gains is much uh, stronger than that of Fine Gael, particularly in Dublin. And allied that with that, there are two or three brands that are beginning to lose their value with the electorate. The first is Sinn Féin, uh, which uh, will lose, maybe not as much as we thought, uh, following Owen O'Brien's heroics on behalf of uh, Mark Ward in Dublin uh, Midwest. But uh, Sinn Féin are going to lose seats in, in the next election. There's no doubt about that. They're going to lose before we even start because of constituency changes and because of defections and what have you, and because of retirements. Uh, secondly, I think the independent brand will be much diminished um, after the uh, next uh, election. I think they probably reached almost a high watermark in 2016. And then the, the far left parties, uh, as we saw in the by-elections and also particularly in the local elections, uh, will also struggle for relevancy in terms of a message to the thing. So when you look at it constituency by constituency, uh, you look at Fine Gael's potential for gains. And in Dublin, there are very few, uh, perhaps Dublin right down, uh, maybe Dublin Midwest. But their difficulty is that the Greens are so strong mm-hmm. in Dublin uh, that potential Finnegal gains would be negated uh, by Greens coming in and stealing their seats. Even on a bad day, I think uh, Fianna Fáil could win three or four extra seats in Dublin. And then if you start looking around at other constituencies, Longford, Westmeath, um, Louth, uh, Cavan Monaghan. Um, I'm not uh, sure about Longford, Westmeath. I wouldn't discount Fine Gael getting sh- Sure, no, but I'm just, I'm, look, mm. look, this is a guess game. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, so, so we're looking at the potential for gains. science. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and Kerry, I, I think Fianna Fáil have far more potential for gains. Okay. And the thing is, when you looked at the British election system, it's so neat. You know, if the Tories are five points ahead in the polls, they're going to get a whomping majority. Even if Fine Gael were to gain three or four percentage points nationally, it might not be any good to them because that might be happening in Dublin. And to gain extra seats in Dublin, it needs a huge surge in support in Dublin if it's going to take extra seats. Pat? Well, <coughs> I, I disagree with very little of what's been said so far, but I'm going to give a qualified answer. I think if the election was held tomorrow, I think Micheál Martin would stand a considerably better chance of being the next Taoiseach than Leo Varadkar. But the election won't be held tomorrow. It will be held in a context as yet undetermined, and it will be held after a campaign that is inherently unpredictable. So, and I think in the course of that campaign, and one of the lessons I think to take from the recent British election is that it is the big things that tend to matter, okay? Small things can trip up governments, but it is the big things that matter. And Brexit and the economy are two big things and they will be big advantages for the government over the course of the, uh, of, of the election campaign. So uh, I, I think it, it depends against what background the election is fought and it depends how that campaign proceeds. And I think Leo Varadkar has the potential to have a very strong campaign, but he also has, there's also the potential there for that campaign to go badly off the rails for him. I think for the first time since the 1980s, we will have a real head-to-head, leader against leader, two big beasts. And I think that will dominate the course of the election campaign. So... To, uh, to recap, I think if the election was held tomorrow, I think Michal Martin would win. When the election is held next year, either February or, uh, or in May, I think I find it 
very difficult to predict because the margins, I think, will be so tight down to a few seats and therefore the last seats in a handful of constituencies. A few dozen votes in a few constituencies, maybe. And that's impossible. But call it, Pat. Put your arse out the window like we have. (laughs) Well, (laughs) Call it, Pat. I've called it. I think Micheál Martin would be the Taoiseach in election right now as to how that campaign will take shape over the next... Uh, and it when depends it, when it how takes, the campaign is called. Right? So one of the debates that's happened in the lead up to the Christmas break was when will the election be held and what context will it be held? I'm so bored with that debate now. Yeah, but it matters because as Pat says, if the election is held in a, in a, at a time, let's say, for example, the dollars is all mid-January and an election is mid-February or early February, then Brexit happens as a fact in the middle of a campaign. It becomes an issue in the campaign. Therefore, it becomes a strong point, you would think, for Fine Gael. So while this is boring, there is quite serious strategic thinking going on behind this. And, and that makes a difference. If Micheál Martin, as we see, would seems to prefer an election in late April or in May, he spies that and doesn't want a February election. All the more reason for Leo Varadkar to push well, for it. This will all be, along with our New Year's resolutions, will all be resolved one way or the other fairly fairly quickly as we get into January as to whether we're going going to have an election. What about that big question there? I mean, I have to, I've been thinking a lot about decades because we're at the end of a decade right now and we're doing various stuff in the, in the newspaper about it and how difficult it is to actually figure out what changes might be afoot over that, that kind of span of time. I think if you talk to people, you know, uh, 10 years ago, I mean, you're talking about the Greens, but the Greens mm-hmm. is something that we're seeing. That's an element that we're seeing right now happening with, you know, with, with scope for, for great sure. growth in the next election. But 10 years time, you have to be looking at factors like what's happening with the global economy, what's likely to happen within the internal dynamics of the EU, uh, and indeed what's going to happen post-Brexit Britain as well, as well as what's happening on the ground. In well, the reason why I say mention the Greens there is because... A- Politics very difficult to predict even into next week or next month or next year. Talking about politics in a decade, like I, I just don't see how that's possible to predict anything with any certainty at all. But the one thing that is certain is um, what's happening to the planet. And I think most um, scientists agree and most people tend to agree with the, with what's happening and, and the fact that the the temperature is going to go up. I, Harry would know more about this than me. I think one, you know, by at least a, de- a degree and a half. And uh, I remember... Um, there was a forecaster and met Aaron last year who did a, a what the what the world will look like in 2050. What Ireland? What a, what a forecast will look like in Ireland in 2050? And it was basically a lot more Atlantic storms, more rain, coastal flooding, um, water shortages, and kind of painted this quite bleak picture. And if all of those things come to pass, then the the issue of climate will be one of the mm-hmm. biggest <coughs> issues politically and uh, uh, socially. And I think. If the, you know, the, the, the thing about the Green Party is the young, younger voters who are aligned to the Green Party, they're unlikely to change given the direction this is going in. So that's the reason can why I, 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 I mentioned that. Can I come that. to that point? Because I think it's a very good point, but maybe coming at it in a slightly different way. I think it's quite possible that in 10 years time, yes, there probably will be a successful, you know, you know, climate change crisis party getting a larger part of the vote. But it may also become in a way that it hasn't been yet the central bone of contention within politics because if the incredibly radical changes which more and more people think are going to be required uh, come to pass they will have an incredibly disruptive effect on people's lives on the jobs that we're already seeing this in relatively small scale ways with you know the turf in the Midlands and various things like that but you know constraints on how people are able to move get to work where they can live um, all those kinds of things you know we've already seen the backlash in France against you know ill-judged you know carbon taxes we're going to see more and more of that I think at the, maybe at the heart of our 
our politics. Yeah, I, I think I think so. I think, but I think Jen is right about this being to the benefit of the Green Party. Climate change, concern about climate change, is the engine behind the Green Party's rise. I think that engine will continue to rev. But traditionally, what happens in Ireland is that the the big centrist catch-all parties of government assume the agenda of the smaller parties. And I think we'll see that happening. So I think, I don't think we'll see the Greens <coughs> become one of the bigger, one of the big parties in the way that, say, they appear to be doing in a lot of European countries. But I do think we will see them in government and I think we will see their agenda form the basis of programmes for government into the future. Isn't the reality, though, that, um, and look, we could talk about the next 10 years for the next 10 hours, but we have a lot lot of other questions to get through, um, is that it's going to increasingly dominate the EU agenda. And then the questions of how effective the EU is, which have been raised by Brexit and by various crises and ongoing crises in places like Italy, are going to become more and more. So when we talk about Irish politics, we'll actually be talking about European politics, because that's what's going to drive... We're talking about global 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 politics. politics, Absolutely. But with the EU as the single biggest block uh, in, in our part of the world in terms of decision making about these things. But it, it's not um, hermetically sealed uh, anymore. If you look at um, the population of Africa is due to increase to 1.5 billion by the year 2050. So you're going to get uh, this phenomenon of mass migration is going to continue and continue uh, at a pace. And I, I think they, they, uh, they, they will try to prevent it. But at some stage, I think they're, they're going to have to see to it in some ways. Uh, secondly, you look at... Um, I mean, if you go, if you went up to the the north during the Brexit debate or over to England, they thought they they were kind of hankering for an England that didn't exist anymore, the England of the great mines and the great industries in the north. They talked about Mackey Engineering and Gallagher cigarettes and Harland and Wolf, but those industries are all gone and they're never going to come back. And what happens now is that that a lot of the new industries in which we're uh, depending, they're going to be gone in a decade as well. The churn is quicker. You know, you'll see Google uh, being very dominant here, but I mean, in ten years' time, Facebook and Google might be gone. And the, 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 whole, the, the whole future of work is going to be very problematic because those who look at these things say that, that 60% of the jobs that exist at present might not even exist in, in, in 20 years' time. And then you look at the kind of the whole green agenda and the green agenda will require more than people to carry around keep cups or to start switching off electricity at home. It will mean very radical changes in the way that people live their lives and people won't be able to travel as much. People won't be, perhaps might not be allowed to own their own cars you know the people that, that suddenly and there people, will be a reaction against that. Yeah, that's people, going to be an important there, there, part of the there, politics as well. That, 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 Particularly that's, that's if these are saying. imposed. Yeah, there, there will be restrictions on the liberty that we all have enjoyed. Can I take your point? Uh, and and that, that's that's going to be very problematic. I, I'll give you a, a last. It's not. Thought it's, on this can one. I take your point with a decade and kind of turn it around, hmm. look backwards over your shoulder? The decade's just gone. Hmm. And what effect it may have in the immediate question of Irish politics is that, you know. I think the coming election will be interesting and it will show us whether people's wants or needs from their parties and what their desires have changed through the decade of austerity. Because let's take 07 as our starting point. Uh, 11 was like, you know, and 16 were kind of punishment elections. They punished, uh, voters punished parties for what they believed was unfair policies. And the 07 election was one at a time where the economy was going well with a bit of risk second term government, not too unpopular, but people decided for the good of their pocket that they would swallow qualms they had about services, capacity, growth. Like the problems then were transport, infrastructure, childcare, 
very, very kind of redolent what we have now. And I think the next election will tell us whether the Irish electorate has changed through the decade of austerity, whether they're willing to do the same thing in 07 in 2020, or whether they're willing to go, well, actually, you know, maybe my pocket and economic growth and, you know, my, my own self-interest is not the most important thing. Maybe there needs to be an importance on services, you know, the wider infrastructure. I think that's going to be a really interesting question of the next election. That's really interesting. And obviously it goes beyond the next election. It goes you know, for, for, for years to come. I'm going to leave it on that one for a moment because we have a lot of questions to get through. Um, this is a really interesting question. Obviously, there's a reason why it didn't come in uh, in audio form because it's from uh, a self-described anonymous councillor. And what he says is, Hi crew, if you were an up-and-coming young independent councillor who was looking to join a left-wing party and who sees advantages and disadvantages to all, which would you go with? I'm talking about the forward trajectory, the internal culture, etc. All else being equal in terms of policy because it largely is. Now, I think all those all the left-wing parties would immediately disagree with the, the last part of that question. I would say there's, there's deep differences between them. But the Labour Party in, in terms don't of agree that, the Greens are a left party. So well, exactly. I mean, you know, Michal Martin would probably describe Fianna Fáil as a centre-left party. But let's <laughs> Let's leave Fianna Fáil out of it. Let's look at the runners and riders there for this entirely, you know, uh, disinterested councillor who just wants to kind of, well, you know, make a contribution to society. Maybe Labour. Maybe we should try and figure out who it is. <laughs> <laughs> Labour, Greens, Sinn Féin, Workers' Party, uh, People Before Profit, Solidarity, Rise, Independence for Change, I suppose, is almost as it's a grouping. Have I got them all there? More or less, yeah. yeah. Okay, so if you were just, you know, what would you think, what would be your fast track to being a TD, I suppose, is part of the question, and maybe ultimately a minister? It into what we were saying previously. If this is to be the decade of green politics and the Greens, then you would say the Greens. Mm. Um, they have caught the zeitgeist. You know, green issues are going to be one of the dominant features of politics in the next decade. I think the next election is going to be key in an Irish context where the Greens catapult over the Labour Party and become the party of the centre-left. By the, the way, Euro- I forgot to mention the Sock Dems. The Sock Dems, yes. And the, Euro- the European... There's, exp- there's the point there. That's the European a, yes. experience shows that when the Green overtakes the traditional Social Democratic Party, that is quite difficult for the Social Democratic Party to get that ground back. Mm. So, bearing in mind that it is going to probably be a decade of the Greens, you would have to think the Green Party. I think the Labour Party in Ireland... It kind of was focusing. It's from, a, from people in the Green Party say that they have detected that the Labour Party have shied away from talking about green politics in the last six months as much as they were in the previous six months. That they seem to have, <coughs> they believe that the Labour Party has almost seeded the pitch. And I think the challenge for the Labour Party now is to convince people of their own core politics, which is you know, quality of life issues, security of work, all those issues, which are going to be you know issues in the next decade as well. As Harry said, you know, it's a churn of, of work practices. Maybe the time will come for the Labour Party in three or four or five years' time, but I don't think the time for them where their issue dominates the political agenda is now. OK, well, if this anonymous councillor, I mean, if he, if he or she wants to join a particular party, I mean, the easiest thing for him or her to do is to look at the, the party, their manifestos and their views and to see the one that, that most closely agrees with his or her philosophy and outlook. He or she seems to believe that they're all the same. Which They're not uh, all the same. They're no, kind no, of they're very, very different. And if he in or no, she... In no political if the name of the, game, the Labour Party the same as, social, uh, the, same as the people for profit? If, if the name of the game for that particular person is personal advancement, maybe they should try something like showbiz because, uh, you know, politics is about ideas. 
And it's, it's about fi- show business for ugly people, surely. <laughs> <laughs> That's very true harsh. as well. Um, uh, but harsh, but true. But I, I mean, they're, they're, they're huge. I mean, the people before profit, the Workers' Party and Solidarity have very different outlooks in terms of their political uh, philosophies but uh, than the Labour Party and the Green Party and the Social Democrats. Before profit, Solidarity or any of those on the harder left likely to be in government in the next 10 years and if this individual not, wants to be a party that can act change they they will they, they their, their whole philosophy they 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 go to parliament as a sufferance but to be or fair to our sufferance. anonymous councillor i'd put uh, words into his or her mouth they didn't actually say they want to be in government they said they wanted to you yeah. know have a forward trajectory yeah, i, w- I so. would i would they, hear they, that question a bit differently okay. actually yeah. I, I i didn't necessarily maybe i'm just hearing uh, but the way I picked that question up was that they view all those uh, left-leaning parties to be the same, like you said. Well, that being the case, then maybe they shouldn't join any of them. Maybe they should stay as an independent. If you look at the uh, local elections just gone, the vote was slightly down for independence on 2014, but there was still around 187 independents elected. So there is an enduring popularity there with Irish voters and their independence in, in government. There are uh, plenty of successful independent TDs. I think of someone like Catherine Connolly, very effective, gets the job done, minimum fa- fanfare. And, uh, you know, maybe that's the path to take. Maybe and, and, you know, there are independents up and coming in the general who would spring to mind, Sharon Kogan on Meath Council Council, first woman to be elected to, to uh, electoral areas, uh, as far as I know, and, you know, exceeded the quota by more than 600 votes. Incredibly popular. And um, very well, very well known, very well liked and potentially in the mix for the for the general, though there's, there's heavy competition. So I'm just saying, you know, mm. maybe stay on as an independent, maybe don't go for any okay, of the Okay, well, that's another option. I mean, I just, uh, I'm wondering, obviously Irish politics are very different from UK politics, but we've just had a major general election with the kind of major significant kind of landmark moment in British politics where they have a very large centre-left party with a more than 100-year history of of vying for, to be, to be the, the governing party. And they went into that election on a certain thesis at a certain project and that project I think it's fair to say was pretty decisively rejected um so I wonder what does that say I always lo- looking at the left here I think we're, all, we're 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 still you know we're culturally very close to what happens in the UK so does something like that have an impact upon how people think about parties of the left here in Ireland well I suppose one of the messages you can take from that even disaggregating the personal unpopularity of Jeremy Corbyn and the Brexit issue from that election. The third reason it seems to me for the Labour Party's crushing debate is that they pre- presented the most left-wing manifesto since the last one was thrown out in 1983. So it seems to me that there isn't enough popular support for uh, those sort of very left-wing policies in the UK. I'd be surprised if it is any different. Uh, if it's any although we have here. a different political landscape here, uh, well, we do, but it's, it's quite centrist as well. Those parties that succeed in the Irish context are centrist, so the left-wing parties tend to move towards the centre once they they go into uh, positions of responsibility, and that's possibly why uh, people before profit and solidarity will never be in government in a way that we understand it. I think you will need a revolution and something happening from the streets, a popular movement before, in the streets before they actually get into uh, power. So uh, if you look at the Irish context, we're talking about the Greens being a left-wing party. There's an internal debate within the Greens uh, between those like Saoirse McHugh and um, uh, others who argue for it to be an explicitly anti-capitalist party. And that motion was put up at its national conference and it was defeated. And the party is against neoliberalism, but sure, aren't we all against neoliberalism? So I'm sure there's somebody in here who isn't. Well, the realistic centrist tendency in that party has dominated. And the same with the Labour Party. I mean, there were radical 
elements within the Labour Party in the past. It had its own militant movement, but the party has become increasingly centrist over the years. It's still left of centre, but it's social democratic now. It's not a socialist party as we understand it anymore. Not that I, not, not, not in my view in any instance. And the same can be said for the other parties, the smaller parties, the Sock Dems uh, and others. The Sock Dems, I, my note on this question is not the Social Democrats anyway, because I think it's one of, been one of the things that we've seen over you know, the last two years has been the failure of the Social Democrats project to take off. There was a lot of hope and maybe bluster in some circles uh, after the uh, the two referendums, the uh, same-sex marriage referendum, the abortion referendum, that uh, the Social Democrats were going to be going to bring in all these young, many of them female campaigners. But as a political project, it simply hasn't taken off. It seems to me to be pretty marvellous. Well, well, let me actually... The, the chance the, yet for an, in a general election, you know, they, they did okay in the locals. Le, let me actually take a question on that because we had a question from Aidan about that. So going into the general election, I'm wondering what the panel thinks uh, the prospects of the Social Democrats are and what they might need to do to generate more support. So yeah, I mean, the the Sock Dems project, um, as Aidan points out, did okay in the locals. Um not so well in the by-elections. There's a sense of, is there a sense of drift and internal division as well? Yeah, I think Jennifer's written extensively about this, that there is a what a drift and div- division anyway between the, the, I suppose, Sock Dems parliamentary operation, which is Catherine Murphy and Roisin Shortall, and the person who was seen up until now probably as their, their best hope of, of gaining a seat, it was Gary Gannon, Dublin Central. I think if you look outside that pool, you would give Keno Callahan perhaps a chance of taking a seat in the general election on the basis of their local res- election results in that area of Dublin and the fact that he has a, an established track, track record. Uh, outside of that, it's really, really hard to see how or where they make gains. They're struggling to make an impact nationally. In fairness to them, there's, their most of no confidence, well, it clearly was a tactic designed to get attention for their by-election candidates. It did have an effect. Uh, it kind of was a clarifying point for uh, the parliamentary arithmetic um, but they, they really are struggling to be- break through on even the issues they want like so they've made a big issue of the National Maternity Hospital that has run its course largely speaking now it's hard to see them attaching themselves to other issues that may be able to allow them to make an impact in the election What do you think Jennifer has fixed as you've, you've probably written more about them than anybody Yeah I mean I was, talk- I was talking to someone yesterday within the party um, just about kind of their plans and their prospects and they were quite blunt, actually, about it. They were kind of saying that actually what the party needs to do is be a bit more ballsy. The motion of no confidence was a step in the right direction. And I think they're going to continue. I mean, obviously, as Fiat said, it was um, designed to, to to gain attention for their, for their by-election candidate. But, you know, it was an important moment and it did kind of um, show how shaky the government was and and helped it to move things on quite a bit. So I think they're going to... Tr- I'm not saying they're going to do more of that, but certainly... To basically, I suppose, yeah, be more ballsy, like the the person inside the party said to me, and, and make more of an impact. And instead of talking about the same things in the doll, to try and branch out a little bit more. Um, and um, I don't know the what are the issue of the leadership. I mean, that might come up in the next year or so, depending on how they do in in the general election. Um, there is a school of thought that the leadership are out of touch with the grassroots. Um, that could the idea there that there's a grassroots, which was some of which was sort of energised by the uh, by, by the two big referendums, mm. and they identify with quite a lot with, with with those sort of cultural identity issues and social identity issues, and that that's not necessarily exactly fits with the. 
Yeah. Russell Shortall and Catherine Murphy. Yeah, I mean, some of this could just be attributed to growing pains of a new party. They're not that, yeah. you know. They're, they're growing, though. Anyway, what's the justification for having Social Democrats being a separate party from the Labour Party? Can anybody tell me? Personality clashes. There you go. Mm. Yeah. And voters aren't interested in that and they won't respond to it. They could, mm. uh, they could amalgamate and call themselves the Social Democratic and Labour Party. Watch that space. Mm. Anyway, we'll move on to another question. This is quite a pointed one. It's not an audio. It's from uh, Aaron McAlorum. And Aaron says... Can you compile a candidate list of current journalists who may become media advisors in the next government? Also, is there a way back to journalism for those that made the switch over during the 32nd Doyle? So that's a two-pronged question. Of course, we the know first Aaron one is, well because he works for the aforementioned Social mm-hmm. Democrats. And there no you go. So listen, this is the thing. That, this is the thing. I mean, let's, be, let's be frank about it. This is the thing that comes up quite a lot of the time. There's a lot of criticism on social media for what that's worth, mm. that journalists who jump the fence pretty easily. We've had it with Sarah Barden who, who used to work with Dear us. Departed and, uh, indeed. And there are many others. I mean, maybe you could tell me how many uh, former political journalists currently are, are, are working for political parties. Just roughly. Are there a lot of them? There's journalists, you know, aside from political journalists working for uh, political parties. A lot of them are journalists going back 10, 15 years who made the jump 10, 15 years ago and are still in there. I'm thinking of the government press secretary or the people who around the Taoiseach um, the deputy government press secretary as well, um, the other government press secretary too. Um, it's yeah. it it is a common occurrence and it's not new. It's been happening for a long, long time. And you know, people get is it up. happening more at the moment? No, no, I don't think so. It's happened for the last 10, 15 years. It's always happened. The accusation, the accusation has always been there. Uh, you know that political journalists are too close to the political parties and mm. therefore new entrants are crowded out and so forth. There may be there may be uh, there may be an element of truth to that. But interestingly. The second half of the question is, is there a way back to journalism for those who made the switch over? And uh, I, I'm, I'm sort of in two minds about this now. The fact is that they tend not to come back. One person who did jump the fence and jump back, albeit as a TD, was Geraldine Kennedy, the former editor of this newspaper. So uh, it's clear that there is a way back. And I think for people who have worked in government, I think that Journalism, if they can leave their political biases aside, journalism and political journalism can benefit uh, from that because they bring an insight into how government works that is sometimes difficult to figure out. From okay, our side but the counter-argument to this and it's implicit in a lot of these criticisms is you're all in a self-referring little bubble, scratching each other's backs and making sure that everybody's you know getting on all right. That is the implicit criticism. Sometimes it is an explicit criticism. (laughs) But uh, I I, I, I think to turn that around, I think if you asked people in government if they get an easy ride from the media, I I think you would get a very different answer to that. Mm. There's there's, there's one other part to this, which is one of the facts of life is that the media is under incredible commercial pressures. Mm. Um, most newspapers, including this one, have fewer journalists to do more jobs than they had 10 years ago. And we all uh, we all experience that in our, in our day-to-day lives. And equally, the PR industry, this isn't, doesn't just apply to politics, but we're talking about politics here, seems to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. So when we had Sam McBride down from Belfast to talk about the situation in Northern Ireland, there are more PR people working for the Northern Irish political parties at Stormont than there are journalists in their entirety in the whole of Northern Ireland, which can't be a good thing, can it? No, but it is a reflection on the current state of the media landscape, as you say, that, you know, we work in a newspaper, a media organisation that that has roots going back 160 years. Um, Other organisations have only arrived here more recently. 
their footprint isn't as strong. So are you to blame people who enter into what may be their first profession, realise it's not as secure as they thought they were, maybe have commitments, families to look after for then taking gainful employment elsewhere? I think it's too simple to say, you know, you're all on the hind tit and you're, 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 you're getting it off. You're getting close to political parties to, you know, c- cuddle up to them and get a job. I, I just think that's too easy. Would the same criticism be made of someone, for example, who's an arts journalist and goes to work for the Abbey Theatre? Or works for the uh, like works covering foreign aid and goes to work for an NGO. It happens that you mix in circles where you know get to know people a bit more, and sometimes it becomes something you want to do. It's not exclusive to political journalism. Like many, you're an arts journalist. Does it happen regularly in the arts sector? Yeah, certainly. Yeah, well, I mean it happens. I mean you you, you you find it more in certain areas than in others. The perception, perhaps because of the importance of what's at stake mm. in politics, is that it's more problematic in in, in politics. I think did people. That presupposes that people are biased before they go in, and I don't think that's the case at all. Um, I don't think you can identify any of our colleagues who have made the jump and say, I detected them writing about a particular issue, a particular person, for a set number of years, for a long, long time, before they made the jump. I don't think that's really clear. I I can't see that. Also, from the point of view of a politician, if he's getting favourable coverage from a particular journalist, then the politician is much better off leaving that journalist where they are mm -hmm. rather than taking them out. Politicians often say that. I've heard politicians say to myself, why would we take X person? Because they're giving us great coverage. Like, that's what they... I've heard that said by by TDs, you know. Sure, that person's giving us great coverage. Why would we bother trying to hire them? Right, we'll leave that one there and we move on to our next question. Dear Inside Politics, with an election coming up, I have wondered about something for years and I'd like to have it finally answered. When a surplus is distributed, how does this happen? Is it an average of the second votes or is it a percentage or do they individually take a vote and distribute it? And if so, how do they pick which of the votes to distribute? If you can answer this, it'll stop me from annoying about it in the next few months. Thank you. That question was from Roisin O'Hanlon. Pat, do you want to put Roisin's mind at rest over the next few months? Uh, there, there's a formula, um, which I won't, uh, I won't read out because it's, uh, it's rather complicated. But what happens when somebody is put over the quota, they may be the, the last bundle that puts them over the quota. So candidate A may be 100 votes short of the quota. The elimination of candidate B may bring uh, candidate A over the quota, but the bundle of votes that goes from candidate B to candidate A may be 200 votes. They have a surplus of 100 votes, not 200 votes, so the formula works out how many votes goes to of, of candidate A's surplus goes to the remaining candidates in the race. It's one of the random parts of the system because clearly the bundle of votes that has put candidate A over the quota is not candidate A's votes. They're coming from candidate B and they may be from a different party, maybe from a different geographic area, may have particular benefits for the other candidates that are uh, that are in the race. But that's how it's done. 
there's so a formula. Clearly, this is it works deeply unsatisfactory and just strikes at the heart of the whole concept of proportional representation and indeed democracy itself. Because, you know, if I get 10,000 votes, I'm going to go my numbers a little bit bigger. If I get 10,000 votes and then somebody puts me over and I get 12,000, so I've got a surplus of 2,000. Really, what should happen is all 12,000 votes should be counted and uh, the, the distribution figured out and then divided by six because 2,000 is one sixth of the total. And that's what should be done. And the reason we don't do it is because we're too lazy slash inefficient exactly slash technological. Do you backwards want to, to do it. Well, if you did it with electronic voting, it could be done instantaneously. Yeah, but that would not be as much fun, Hugh. And I think we, as a country, we decided <laughs> that we want to have lots of fun at the cans, but we want to, we don't want the cans to go on for three weeks, as you seem to appear to be suggesting. So but that could uh, be its own kind of fun. I think this isn't God, perfectly satisfactory no. as it is. Thank you very much. There's Does it? Is there any any fear, any sense at all, fear that this has ever you know had a direct impact on who actually ended up getting elected? I remember a specific instance when people have queried the you know actual process of allocating surpluses. People have queried counts, all right, and you know whether certain votes came from certain bundles. That gets done quite a bit, but I don't remember the specific formula that Pat's talking but, about being an issue of contention. But you have no, you would have no grounds to challenge yeah. an electoral result because this is this is the way it's according done. to the rules. This is how it is and done. Like PRSTV is complicated as we know you, but like could, what do you prefer first past the pro- post you, you, you could plead that this is unfair and unrepresentative but you can't plead that it's against the rules mm. this is what the rules say in the, in the legislation but you could plead you could plead that it's against natural justice couldn't you you can take it to the court if you like but that is they are the rules and so the rules after the three week count Hugh then wants to spend <laughs> a month down the into, pub, to, into the public uh, well, hearts uh, by uh, dragging it to the, all the way to the Supreme One of the things you told me about this Pat is that Maybe you know, there's a whiff of lay litigant off this with, one with, with, electronic, with electronic voting as I say you could calculate the thing precisely and pretty much immediately but when electronic voting was introduced on a test basis in 2002 um they didn't do that. They just replicated the old system. Because the old system is set down in law. And the new system which they were trialling had to be run on the same, mm. in accordance with the same laws as all the other cans in the country. I just, I'm deeply dissatisfied I agree, with Pat. There was no fun in that. When you see, you've seen the videos of, of when it was announced and it was no crack. Right. I'm deeply dissatisfied with this. I can see myself take myself off to the high court but anyway, why don't you just come down to a count centre in the next election first before you we do that we can arrange that yeah yes, there's nothing like, you know your enthusiasm as you yes. walk in the door to Tally's Wayne's at about like 7 or 8 o'clock at the evening <laughs> you're down to your last baggage jellies and you know you've, yes. you've exhausted every conversation with every party official and tally man you can possibly do yeah we can, so we many can coffees. fix you up with some tally man who will explain uh, the whole certain. thing to you at great length uh, that's, the, that's the best offer I've had in 2019 you, have, anyway. you, you, have, you like Donegal don't you they have good tallies up there um all right. Listen, uh, that's the end of this particular podcast. Thanks to to Harry, to Pat, to Fiak and to Jennifer. We're going to do some more questions in another podcast coming up next week. But until then, thanks for listening.